You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. All right, welcome back to the Beltway Briefing. It is December 20th, and we are coming off of last night's December Democratic debate. I'm joined by Mark and our colleagues, Jamie Ansorge in New York and Joe Hill in Philadelphia, two two of our uh, excellent team members and staunch Democrats and active Democrats, uh, most most importantly for purposes of, of this podcast. So guys, let's talk about the debate last night. Mark, let's start with fact or fiction like we always do. First fact or fiction point. The debate reflects that the Democratic Party is united around defeating Trump. Fiction, if you say it that way, no, the debate didn't reflect unity on that stage. But the Democratic Party is, in fact, united around defeating Trump. And you got to let us sort this thing out on our side and then come out of Milwaukee united with with the fool, well, let me ask you a question: Is Bernie a Democrat for purposes of that question? He's running for the Democratic nomination. Yeah, Mark. yeah. Bernie's still a question mark in my mind. Maybe the activists are closer to it, uh, but he didn't come in all the way from the cold in 2016. That did not help Hillary, and I still. I don't know what his plans are when he does not get the nomination, which of course he won't. Guys, weigh in. I mean, I say fact. I mean, you heard a number of times uh, each of the candidates uh, saying how anyone on that stage is going to be a better president for the American people than than Donald Trump. And, you know, I think it's more than lip service. I think Mark's right that, you know, Bernie might be the one person that might only offer a lukewarm endorsement to, to some of the folks on that stage. But I think mostly um, those candidates are going to come in line behind whoever the nominee is and, and be united around, uh, you know, winning in November. Joe, jump in. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think that one of the things that was interesting was I think that this debate placed less of an emphasis on Donald Trump than, than prior debates. Uh, I think the candidates were able to get a little bit more in the in the weeds on policy and personality, frankly, we saw a couple of dust-ups between different leading candidates. And Andrew Yang, in particular, I think, actually called it out when he said, look, if we spend all of our time debating on Trump's terms, uh, then we're going to lose. And if we make a good night, yeah, he did. Yang had a good night. It, it, by the way, he's de- irre- he, he had a good night. He's irrelevant, but he had a good night. Well, not irrelevant if he takes a few votes away from somebody and keeps them under 15%. But it, it the debate benefited tremendously from fewer people on the stage. For sure. And if there are fewer yet again in January, it, it'll be an even better debate because they actually did some debating. Instead of just giving speeches. Okay. Well, just on that point, who's off the stage in January, Mark? Maybe Andrew Yang. <laughs> <Shall> I <laughs> just I said he was irrelevant. <laughs> right? <laughs> but irrelevant doesn't mean that he doesn't take Listen, a few points away. Yang Back needs up. to get off the stage. Steyer needs to get off the stage. Agreed. Agreed. Right? 
Sanders needs to get off the stage. I mean, obviously he's not going to, and he's got, he's polling well, but come on. Like, do you want to beat Donald Trump or not? Well, yes. Okay. That's, is that a question? Yes. It's a rhetorical question, Mark. Let's help our viewers, excuse me, our, our listeners. Let's help our listeners, Jamie. I'm, I'm going to take Howard's role here for a moment. Uh, let's help our, our listeners with delegate math so Howard can appreciate how Andrew Yang or anyone who takes a couple of points away from somebody who is in the mid-teens could be relevant mm-hmm. here. All right. So well, what's, what Mark's referring to is the 15 percent threshold. So for any candidate to receive any delegates in any of the states, they have to hit at least 15 percent. And if you look at a lot of the polls, many of the candidates are hovering right around there in Iowa, New Hampshire, and in many of the Super Tuesday states as well. So to Mark's point, Yang could take away a few points from someone, but he could also be something of a kingmaker if he does drop out and endorses someone, you know, and can try and move his three to five points behind someone else. So I think it does position him as as somewhat relevant as we're getting down to this final group. That's of, a of really, candidates. really bad way of picking a nominee. <laughs> well, look, it's, you know, Yang is speaking to... Well, let's, I, Howard, I have a better idea. Let's do it like your party did in 2016. How, how's that working out for the world? Democracy is a messy business. And Yang is speaking to non-political people that are trying to follow this political process. And, you know, I think he has something of a, you know, a strong, a small but strong following. And, you know, again, I, I expect that he he will play a role in, in picking the eventual nominee as he eventually falls off the debate stage and is forced to probably endorse someone else. Right. Look, he's a go, go ahead, Joe. No, I was just gonna say, look, if you're if you're pretty much apolitical or you're new to this process and you're not in the weeds on policy, free money is a pretty compelling argument. And so and I, I think and that math and, yeah. right. And I, I think he has something. Uh, I think the other interesting thing about his coalition is I think he's pulling away votes or has the potential to pull away, you know, all votes from a bunch of different candidates, whether it's Bernie Sanders, the, the younger, more grassroots folks who aren't as attuned to the political process or Pete Buttigieg. I think that he's kind of cutting across uh, all the different candidates. So I do think he's a factor. I don't think he's going to be president. He's not going to be our nominee, but I do think that he's going to be a factor moving forward and a, a pretty strong one. One interesting thing uh, in terms of free money for everybody is it's a, there's a, there's a stark difference between the candidates when I'm going to keep referring to Hillary Clinton on the Howard Stern show, Mark, I know you're very excited about my, uh, still um, got to listen. Yeah. Love for that interview. But, um, she and Howard Stern were talking about uh, these people, you know, free college for all. And it's like the kid who runs for student council president in sixth grade and wins because they promise free <laughs> lunch for everybody or free candy for everybody. Great. It's very interesting how Yang and Warren and Sanders are on the one hand, free college for all free medic, free medical care for all. And then other candidates like Klobuchar and Buttigieg and Biden are not following that line. That to me is is just one of the most stark differences between these candidates. Joe, Jamie, anybody? Sure. Well, 
I was going to say, because half of them are trying to win the primary and half of them are trying to win the general. And they're two completely different messages for each race. And people have different strategies and different, you know, beliefs, think, frankly. Well, what does that there's, say there's, about the fact about elect ultimate electability? I mean, it, that's that's what I keep saying. I'm not pro-Trump, but like somebody's actually got to try to win right. this thing next <laughs> November. And the guy's formidable. Right. But look, and there's there's two strategies, right? It's do you want to win over independents and moderates or do you want to rally the base? You know, ideally you can do both. But, you know, one of the, you know, the keep your health care if you want it and public option is obviously geared towards general and winning over independents and moderates. But look, there is a riled up base of young people and, you know, lower middle class people that want to hear free college, erase student debt free healthcare. And that's the message that's going to get them knocking on doors and, and getting out there. So it's, I, I, I see that. Yeah. But can those people, Joe pivot, can Elizabeth Warren, if she were to win the nomination, can she pivot to the general? I, I think so. I mean, I always, and maybe because I'm a little bit more uh, attuned to this process, I don't take her seriously or literally rather when she says I don't free take college her for seriously. everyone, <laughs> I know well, that's where we differ. I don't take I don't take it literally. I think that she's pointing toward a north star, and she's going to negotiate what she can get. And you know the preference is we need to have a system that's fair for everybody as it relates to student debt, as it relates to health care, and we shouldn't negotiate against ourselves this early in the primary before a single vote has been cast in 2019. Yeah, but can she, Mark? Can she pivot? She's not going to be, she can pivot, maybe not that successfully, but she has started to leave some room to move, but she's not going to be the nominee. Howard loves the narrative that the progressive wing of the party is ascendant and dominant, but just look at that stage. You had two people talking about free stuff for everybody Yang's income security plank is actually, to me, the weakest part of his program. The and best part of his program is the fact that he doesn't wear a tie. Absolutely. He looks good up there. Well, it's that brown alum thing, Howard. Yeah. I, I always have to say yeah. that in. But, but, but look at the stage. The party is much more represented by Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and that's where the polling is. That's where the majority of the party is. And those people, Joe Biden being the nominee, they, they don't have to pivot. They're already there. So the question isn't whether an Elizabeth Warren can pivot as a nominee in the general election, because she's not going to be the nominee. The question is whether Joe Biden can bring in Warren supporters and bring in Sanders supporters. And that's back to the beginning I, and your first question. I totally disagree with that, Mark. Biden is not a moderate. I mean, I understand relative to Warren and Sanders that he appears to be, he is a relative moderate, but he is not a moderate. Everything Nobody on that Nobody on that stage is a moderate and Biden cannot appeal. I don't believe he cannot shift to the left to pull in the Warren and Sanders voters. And Not also he does need to, and also pull in those 
Trump voter, the people that voted for Trump last time that are, I think, somewhat predisposed to vote for the D's this time. Well, I think we can take a vote since nobody's voted on anything yet, Howard. We can take a vote on this call. I think the vote on this call is three to one to continue the process, actually let some Democrats vote for a nominee, and then let's see what happens. You've already conceded this election to Trump. Mark, we have we have listeners. We have to keep the people happy. Let's let's take a vote. All in favor of continuing the process and actually letting Democrats (laughs) vote, raise their hand. So the the motion carries. So on that point, Joe. If a candidate doesn't win place or show in Iowa or New Hampshire, then he or she is out of the race. Fact or fiction? I think fiction. I, I, I know that folks are going to disagree with me. I think there's a scenario in which Biden does neither, and he still is the most likely nominee in my view. I, I don't see a path to him coming in the top three in Iowa. I think it's going to be a little easier in, in you know, uh, in New Hampshire, and he's likely to win South Carolina. Uh, so I think the first four primary states you need to you, you need to show have a good showing. Um, but I think the conventional wisdom around you know winning placing or showing in Iowa and New Hampshire is a little bit dated. My recollection is that no Democratic nominee other than Bill Clinton has ever won the nomination without winning either or one of the two states. I think. So why is this different? Well, I was going to say, we never had a race with so many competitive candidates, you know, so close to the caucus, frankly. I mean, really? I I think so. I mean, I think by, you know, in 2008, it was really down to Hillary and Obama, you know, in 2004, I think, I mean, Edwards was still in it, but, you know, it it has never been this close with this many candidates this late in the process, I don't think. Jamie, we we know Mark and I know that you were born shortly before the 2004 election, <laughs> yeah, but there were actually elections before yeah. then. Yeah, look, I, no, Just no, no, kidding. I hear you, and and I think Biden is going to have a lot of trouble with the narrative. I think he can he can still you know as we said if if he's going to hit 15 percent in a lot of these Super Tuesday states and win a ton of delegates and the math looks good for him, but I think if he does come in third or fourth place, and Pete comes in first or second place in both Iowa and New Hampshire, he's going to have a narrative problem, even if he comes back and wins South Carolina. The question is, how how much momentum does Pete get there? Because it could, it could be a serious problem for him. Biden is the only candidate who can probably not win place or show in either of the first two and survive. It's not a good idea. I don't think he's working for that result. I think he's going to win place or show in one or the other, but he could probably survive that. None of the others could. So you can cross off your list after New Hampshire, everybody who didn't win place or show in one or the other. And I I think you're going to be looking at the same four people that are on top now but with the, with the order potentially scrambled. And then it gets much better for the vice president, much better for Joe Biden. When you go to South Carolina, which he will win, you, when you go to Nevada, which he will win, and then you roll into your third factor fiction, Howard, and, and Super Tuesday. Uh, right, Mark. Well, let's talk about Super Tuesday, Mark. Um, California decides this thing. Joe. 
I don't know. I mean, I think to to kind of continue the train of thought Mark was on, I think the only interesting dynamic is going to be what factor does Bloomberg play uh, beyond these first four states? I'm not saying he's going to win the nomination. However, he's spending more money than anyone else, and he's running a race pretty much based on the Super Tuesday states and the contest beyond uh, March and April. And I think for... For example, if we see Biden not win place or show in Iowa and there's this whole narrative about what are the Democrats going to do? Bernie and Warren are taking over the Democratic Party. There's going to be a whole a a whole lot of interest, I think, in someone else who can provide a counter narrative um, to the left. And I I think that he could potentially take away votes in that Super Tuesday run uh, that that Biden was counting on being the establishment pick, so to speak. Um, So I don't know if California determines it, I think we might find ourselves dragging on into April. Well, just Mark, to your count the delegates point, California has more delegates than all the states that go before California combined. Um, and and so it, California's moving up this year is going to play a huge, a huge role. Very interestingly, Jamie, the... Um, Betting markets. So Biden, who was way down in the odds a month or so ago, is now way, way up. He's betting market average is 30% Biden. Um, Sanders is next at 19.2, followed by Warren, Buttigieg, and Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg, according to the betting markets, has a greater chance of being elected president than Andrew Yang, Amy Klobuchar. Etc. By the way, Hillary Clinton, according to the betting markets, has a better chance than Andrew Yang and Amy Klobuchar. But I digress. Um, I think Bloomberg is interesting. I mean, he's somebody that would obviously appeal across the aisle. I just think it's it's he's getting started too late. I don't think you can run and not be on that stage. But what do you think, Jamie? You're you're a New Yorker. Yeah, look, I think he's going to run a incredible. Well, we know it's going to be well resourced, but I think he's going to run a very smart campaign. He's going to he has a lot of brilliant technologists and digital people around him that are going to do micro targeting in districts and those key Super Tuesday states, reaching them with you know the right messages at the right time in the right places. And he could definitely make a splash. But you know, to your to the Yang point, I mean, he's I think more likely to act as a spoiler if he's pulling five percent from you know, frankly, Pete um, in California is around like 12% right now. If he doesn't hit that 15% threshold in places like California, which has 400 plus delegates, Florida and Texas, which both have 200 plus delegates, he's kind of done. So I think that's, that's the big challenge for Pete. And obviously the big opportunity for Bloomberg, if he can pick up, if he can hit 15% in those states, which I don't see happening, but you know, Bloomberg is not going to pull Biden below 15% anywhere. Biden is going to get delegates every single time Democrats Democrats vote. Biden's going to get 15% or more and pick up delegates. Bloomberg is not going to hit 15% anywhere. He's not going to go to the convention with a single delegate. Could he could he screw things up for Biden or Buttigieg, much more for Buttigieg, as Jamie is saying, 
because if he holds Pete under 15, then Pete also gets no delegates. But but that magic number is one that Biden's never going below and Bloomberg's never going above. I agree. But but fix in on California, because, I mean, you could have Sanders win California, but you could have Biden win Texas and, and Florida, which both have 200 plus delegates. And this thing could drag on for a while, which Joe said. So, guys, this is all taking place against the backdrop of one of the strange, the strangest period in my life in in Washington or my professional life. Anyway, um, you've got impeachment raging and you've got the country pretty much, according to polling, evenly divided on whether this is a good thing or 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 not. And. How do you separate the signal from the noise amidst amidst that kind of backdrop? What what should people be paying attention to? How do the Democrats distinguish themselves? How do they deal with the fact that impeachment is like hanging out there at the same time they're campaigning to be president of the United States? It's a very murky atmosphere. Chuck Todd said something that resonated with me that, you know, here we have impeachment, which has only happened in you know three times in American history, but somehow it just feels like another day in, in the battle, in this war that's raging. And I, I don't think it really, you know, is going to have a huge impact on the primary and it might in the general, I think if anything, it's going to have more impact on a lot of these Senate seats in terms of, you know, their votes on impeachment being a referendum on the president. Um, but I don't, I don't see this having a huge effect in the primary because frankly, everyone's been on board with it. Every, there hasn't been much of a difference between the pri- primary candidates in terms of how they're approaching the impeachment. Also, it's over. It was over before it began. When it began, everyone knew that the House was going to impeach the president and the Senate was not going to remove him from office. And it's already baked into the calculus as an event that has come and gone. If there were any uncertainty, if there were any drama, if there were any interest, maybe, maybe it would find its way into the Democratic primary. But other than some senators having to sit in Washington for a couple of weeks in January, nobody is is in suspense uh, about the outcome. So it's it's just one more thing that never happened before uh, until Trump became president. I'm exhausted yeah. by the story frankly and I can't imagine if I weren't following the news and I was, you know, not really as engaged in the political process how annoying the impeachment story would be to me. Um I think Yang said it hit the nail on the head when he said it's like watching a ball game you already know the score to. Um, you know, so I think I think there's basically two approaches Democrats can take. One, you can take the Yang approach and pretty much ignore it and use it as a backdrop and and, and paint an alternative vision and a, a positive vision for the country, which is what he was saying the Democrats need to do. Or you could run right at it like it seems uh, Senator Warren is doing. Um, it seems like she's making the foundation of her campaign, the foundation of her argument, the notion of corruption. Um, it's a contrast, not just to Trump, but, um, you know, I don't want to imply that 
the vice president is corrupt in any way, but you know, it's also a contrast to him. Well, um, what about the wine cave? <laughs> or, or the or the wine cave? Hey, the the, that was right. <laughs> She's such a phony baloney. I mean, who doesn't like a good wine cave? Right. Right. Yeah, she of is course. such a phony baloney. I mean, she really is. Look, well, because she raised money from billionaires for the Senate, and what she didn't spend, she transferred to this campaign for all and, sorts of different yeah. reasons. Well, um, for, for all sorts of different reasons, yeah. Mark. But it may be true. How it may some, be true. She's never been in a wine cave. We don't. We don't know. Some I know of going back to my United States right. Treasury days when she was running the Congressional Oversight Panel, um, and. She was a Harvard law professor. Look, I, I know she doesn't come from um, means and she's self-made and she's in, she's impressive, but she's she's a phony baloney. And 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 look, I think the administration is is ethically challenged on a lot of levels. But she got up there last night and said this system, Donald Trump has made the system around government more corrupt than it's ever been. That's oh, not true. Disagree. Okay, that is Strong, not. No, Mark, that is not. Mark, Strong, you do it for a living. Well, you do it for a living. it's ever Mark, been like, I, I wasn't around. For, I'm not talking about the Trump, the administration. Trump administration. They say it was really bad. Mark. But since then, Mark, tell how me has, administration with as many. Mark, go ahead. Yes. Yes, Mark, Howard. I'm not. That's. I am not saying that this administration isn't corrupt or ethically challenged. What I am saying is what she said, obviously it is. What I am saying, what she said is that the, the what we all do for a living is worse now than it was six years ago. That is not true. You tell me, Mark, is, is how you do your job today any different than it was when you did your job in the Obama administration? Well, sure, because in the Obama administration, we were dealing with honest, honorable, and intelligent. Come on, Mark. Of Come on. With the, she is a. Wait, wait, wait. Apples, oranges, and pears. Elizabeth Warren is a phony. Fact or fiction? Fact. Fact. Okay. No disagreement there. Oh, the I got him to States, admit that. All right. The United, the Trump administration is. More, more, more corrupt and more ethically challenged, which I frankly withdraw as a concept here. It's not any to even suggest a moral equivalence. Okay. Fact. Done. That's my point. That's not what I'm saying. She said last night that the swamp is deeper now than it was before and the that's not true we do it every day for a living it is what we do for a living is it hasn't changed one iota one iota yeah. not to mention the emoluments clause which i think still needs to be looked at so and is going to be well, looked at well what you're saying which i think is probably right probably right is that the way in which the Trump administration is historically and epically corrupt hasn't influenced the way in which business, Washington works. Right, right. In which people, the way Washington works, fair which enough. Is a, which is a good thing. I mean, 
It's just brought more criminals into government and sent more close associates to jail. Look, there are, there are, <laughs> there are a lot of issues. I just think there's a nostalgic her, concept. I mean, you know, I don't yeah. like her, and she, Howard. Here's the good news: take her off your list of things to worry about. She's not going to be the nominee. She's not going to be the vice presidential candidate. She's not going to be the secretary of the treasury in a Biden administration. Ooh, God, she's going to continue to serve the people of Massachusetts as a Senator. And, and you can stop worrying Joe, about Elizabeth. Who are the, who are the last two standing? I would say it's, I would say it's likely to be Biden and Warren. If I had to bet. Yeah. Mark. Biden and Bernie. Bernie is a version of Biden. Bernie is never running out of money, is never going away, is going to pick up delegates in state after state after state after state. He's just not going to pick up enough to get near the nomination. I don't know that he picks up enough to deny Biden a majority on the first ballot, but but he, I think, is he's going to be standing. If he Biden will be standing in first, Bernie will be standing. Maybe Warren standing there with a, with the two of them. I don't think so. But I and I wish I were wrong on this because he's not even a Democrat. But Bern, Bernie is not going away. And Jamie is Klobuchar on the debate stage in January. You know, maybe by power of, you know, all these folks that, that have fallen out of, out of the debates, you know, obviously Harris has dropped out, Booker's out, Gillibrand's out. It's possible that there's such a desire to keep, you know, a, a woman on the stage that, you know, she's able to rally the donors necessary to stay on. But otherwise, I don't see her as being very relevant. I know Mark disagrees, but she's still in low single digits in Iowa. And, you know, she had a few good moments last night, but... I think even if she is on the next debate, I still don't see her as being relevant. Joe, can Buttigieg, uh, can Buttigieg draw in a broader audience? I don't think so. Now, I I think that his his challenge is going to be black voters. I mean, frankly, which which make up a you know a significant portion of the Democratic primary. He hasn't demonstrated the ability to speak in a way that resonates with uh, with those voters. I, I think part of it is that. He's not known, um, but I also think that uh, most voters look at a mayor of, you know, a small city um, and don't see a credible uh, candidate for the presidency. Um, I don't think he can really draw in uh, more folks than than he already has. Uh, and I, I do think that the wine cave uh, uh, kind of attack that that Warren um, levied at him is is going to be damaging because I do think that there are a lot of voters who don't understand the process. And uh, when she painted a picture of a crystal field room with thousand dollar bottles of wine, it points to, uh, you know, uh, a, a, like Andrew Yang said, you know, you shouldn't have to as a, as a woman go and shake trees in a wine cave to, to be elected president. And I think it plays into what a lot of voters think the process is today. Um, and I think he's going to have to explain um, who he's taking money from, why he's 
taking the approach he, he has. So I think he has a lot of problems that are just like unresolved. Uh, and I don't see how he pulls more folks in. So let's end on this last note. What, what, <laughs> let's predict a surprise. Let's each predict something that's going to happen between now and Iowa less than two months away. That's going to shake this thing up. I'll start. I predict that somebody that a party elder will come out and try to unite the party around electing somebody who will not only defeat Donald Trump, but get this country back in a, in a better place, in a more stable place. We are not in a good place right now. We're not in a good place domestically, politically, socially, internationally. This guy has set us back a long, long way. And somebody will come out and make that kind of a statement, a Bill Clinton, a Hillary Clinton, a Barack Obama. Somebody's going to come out and, and do that. Mark. Well, one of the three you mentioned would potentially move the needle. Even Barack Obama may not move the needle that far. You you and your Hillary obsession from uh, Howard Stern. I'm bit, if you, I know you're not a Democrat, Howard, but Jamie and Joe will tell you, nobody cares what Bill and Hillary Clinton have to say if they come out and try to move the party behind somebody, they're only going to hurt him or her. I hope they come out and try to move the party behind Bernie, because that'll be the end of Bernie. So I I don't see, maybe Barack, maybe Barack, I, I would welcome Mark, that. Mark, what's your surprise? What's going to happen? My, well, my surprise is going to uh, be obvious. Uh, something's going to happen. I think an event is going to happen in the world, in the country, potentially in the world. It's not going to be a good event. Politics doesn't get moved by good events. It's moved by bad events. And and I hope to heck I'm wrong, but sooner or later, something bad is going to happen. And we're going to see then whether the country wants Donald John Trump to lead it through something something bad, or whether that finally breaks the fever and people realize that we need uh, a responsible president. So what's what's the event I, above my pay grade? But but I I fear a bad event, and that'll move this thing. I I hope in a good direction. Joe. Uh- my prediction is Mike Bloomberg is in double digits in the polls uh, before Iowa. Hmm. National national Jamie. polls? Yeah. National polls. National polls before Iowa. I was also going to go with Mayor Mike. I just think, you know, he stayed out of this thing in 2008 because he didn't see, see a path to victory. I think his um, messaging in 2016 around being a self-made man in comparison to this president was extremely powerful. And I think he's got to have something up his sleeve or else he wouldn't be in this thing, spending what he's spending. And, uh, you know, he's, I don't know exactly what his impact will be, but he's going to have a splash at some point. Clearly has a plan and he's clearly very smart. And like you said, right. <laughs> data and technology right. and there's money is no object. That's for darn sure. 
All right. Well, let's end there. Thanks, guys. This was great. And we'll continue to watch. We're going to take a break for a couple of weeks for the holidays. Happy holidays to all our listeners. Mark, good luck to your Eagles this weekend. <laughs> Appreciate I might, that. I might even root for them. Joe, I guess they're your Eagles, too. They're right. not They're not my Eagles, that's e for e sure. But I, e Ethan Alderman and I will be there. Watch, watch for us on TV. All right, guys. Thanks so much, and happy holidays, everybody. Thank you. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. If you liked our show, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And while you're at it, drop us a rating. To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.